This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. card carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. There's so much going on in sports. We usually begin our segment with what caught our eye in sports this week. But I'm going to turn that around, yeah. and maybe we'll think about what did not catch our eye in sports this weekend, um, including horse racing. Yeah, no, I did not watch the <laughs> no, Preakness. The Preakness, no. which is you know one of these big, giant, you know, triple crown races, but it just got imploded because the uh, the winner, the quote winner in um, in the Kentucky Derby was disqualified to our loss. Yeah, I think it would be interesting. I, I haven't actually watched, like, I mean, because they, they can do things like ratings for horse races and stuff, like how many people <laughs> right, watch. Right. Like, you know, when, million, when when there's not a triple ca- crown in play, how many people I watch think, these remaining two horse races? I think it really and Preakness. It, goes it, must, it must have a huge effect. Yeah, but the Preakness almost always gets the winner of the Kentucky Derby, and this year it did yeah. not. So that, that was one of the reasons why it did not catch our eye. Although the oddity, I don't know if, if you caught this, apparently one of the horses tossed its jockey in the beginning. I did hear that, and, and <laughs> it did actually not too bad. <laughs> it did like sixth. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I mean, right. uh, although it's ent- you have to think about the them. jockey union can't be pleased about that. <laughs> they can't be, but you remember, jockeys are, are little, but they, they weigh 100, 110 pounds. But that's a lot for a horse, so they can run a lot faster without their rider. So that's one of the other events we didn't we didn't really pay attention to this week. Um, we were joking around before. I mean, I I paid attention to the Yankees destroy the Orioles a couple of games. That's not something that people are paying much attention. Well, to. I mean. You know, as a Red Sox fan, I look and I'm a little dismayed that the Red Sox are five games back the Yankees. The Yankees seem to be winning through all these amazing amounts of injuries. And then I look and I'm like, oh, well, they've played the Orioles about 20 times and the Tigers about 15 times. So maybe that's why. (laughs) That's right. They've got 27 home runs against the Orioles already. Yeah. And it just, I mean, actually, there was a moment last night. Baseball's, uh, obviously, uh, you know how much I love baseball, but one of the things I particularly enjoy, just putting it on and just working on my computer, but there was a home run that that, uh, Clint Frazier hit yesterday that went over the center field fence and the... The, the center fielder for the Orioles leaped and tried to catch it. He didn't have really a play on it. And he sunk to – he just slid down the wall, fell to the ground, just dejected. Yeah. And it just was a, a – you know, and, I, a, and I think that's really what's going to probably define this kind of current – I mean, there's a lot of things that defi- make this current era of baseball fairly unique. But, you know, I mean, we focused last year a lot on, like, oh, my goodness, there's these three or four, like, teams that, like, basically broke 100 wins. And that's relatively unprecedented that so many teams yeah. would have that kind of record. But it's really being driven by the bad teams. That's right. And the same and, division as some of these Yeah, teams. no, I mean, and, so you know, a- and, and we have some... You know, we have a real competition for historically bad teams, it seems, almost every season now. And you, I, I kind of wonder, is that... A product like is that is are, are these bad teams almost bad by intent? Like, are we seeing more kind of quote unquote tanking or whatever the baseball version of tanking is, or is it just that some teams are just so poor, like that the disparity in management together, yeah. um, among baseball teams is stark, and that the, you know 
now that analytics have kind of taken over baseball, the teams that know what they're doing can really just do have such a discernible advantage. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we can ask that question, and, and there certainly is more variance than ever, which is what we what we mean when we say there's lots of teams at the top and lots of teams at the bottom. And, of course, that creates that, that spread. But you, you, you asked the right question. There's really no huge reward to tanking well, in baseball. Well, I mean, well, it's, I mean the, the reward to tanking in other sports has been all oh, you – you know, get these high draft picks, and those high draft picks have meaning because you know what you're doing drafting. It could be that teams like Baltimore or whatever, they actually have decent, you know, kind of analytics, decent management. They, they've they sort of decided that, well, actually, you know, somehow we've, we, we know enough now about drafting that we can be more predictable about it, and therefore tanking has more value. That that could be one scenario. Could be. It also could be that they just, you know, it's expensive. I mean, baseball is a team without a, a salary cap, and, yep. and you have to pay a lot of money. Speaking of paying a lot of money and, and badly run, the Mets, uh, another thing we're not paying attention to, Orlando Cespedes. He, he got injured on his on his ranch, and he's, yeah. he's toast. And he, he's, he's, he's paid like something like $30 million. Dave Wright has paid a huge amount of money. All this, by the There's way... There's a lot of dead money on, it's a lot of, on dead a lot money. of teams. Turns out they actually have insurance money, which they're yeah. not putting back into the team. Are they still playing Bobby Bonilla? <laughs> I think they are, are right? I think there's a couple, couple million coming off the books every year for Bobby Bonilla. You know, it's, it's, it's so, sort of sad, because the Mets are are obviously a, a New York team. They should have a lot of revenue. They do have a lot of revenue, and they could do better. Oh, and, yeah. And the Cespedes injury. And it wasn't so long ago that they were good. I mean, they went to the World Series like not yes, so long not ago. not too long you ago. Know? Surprising. I mean, they're actually speaking of, um, of we're good, and then the, I read a wonderful article. Um, I, I think it's Neil Payne, you, you know, yeah. a longtime you know, guest on our show. He had this great article talking about the dynasty of the San Francisco Giants and how they're now toast. And yeah. what was makes them particularly interesting was they have, like the Red Sox, three champ, world championships and yeah. World Series wins in a very short period of time, but followed every other year with just disastrous results. Yeah. And, and that's an incredibly unusual phenomenon. There's been di- dynasties in baseball, many of them, but you just don't see this kind of back-and-forth slingshot effect and the Giants yeah, no, I mean, well, that. What they did, that, that, even year, that even year Giants effect was really interesting. And I haven't read the article, admittedly, myself to sort of 10, see if there's 12, some kind of 14, like logic right? to yeah. it. Like if there's some kind of, like how that kind of happened other than just sort of you know ra- you know random chance i feel like the last actual real dynasty we had was the yankees i don't know if we've had a dynasty since then the right? real dynasty so what yeah, do you I mean, mean by like, that well i mean i uh, guess you don't think the red sox have been a dynasty well i, I, yeah, <laughs> I no, no i mean this is an interesting sort of thing and uh, you know it, it, how do you kind of measure like what 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 do you need to have happen to have a dynasty i mean people talk at least in in other sports like you have to one like you know three championships in right, four years right. or something like that and certainly that has i mean the red sox have won four world series in the last 20 years or 15 years i guess and that's very impressive and i've enjoyed every one of them but i'm not sure any you know they've been kind of separated enough like three or four years apart that i'm not sure anybody would call that a dynasty well well, bill james uh, i learned this from neil's article has a has a statistic sort of dynasty points of course it's it's a kind of like a cumulative sum and you get points for basically competitive um uh, quality and then you add them up and it's kind of a sliding sum as you move along so this is Wharton moneyball i'm professor adi weiner um if you would like to call us it is wednesday morning if you'd like to call in and make your comments 
comments on the dynasty theory that we're discussing in baseball. One of the sports we are really did not catch our eye this week. It's kind of in the doldrums. You can call us at one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, or you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXN dot com. So baseball, there's a lot going on. We're, but it's really kind of that that met low point, if you will. It's, it's, it's hard to buy into anything that's happened so far. It, really. Right, right. But I will say that it has sort of shook out a little, shook, shaken out a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, we saw this. You know, the Orioles started off okay, and but now it looks like the teams that we expected. You no, know, I mean, along. I think certainly, you know, this most of the to- kind of top teams that we have right now are kind of ones that aren't surprising us. You know, I mean, the Yankees, obviously, we kind of knew that they would be a top team, and the Houston Astros look unbelievable as they and have the for the last three seasons, and the Dodgers. Uh, you know, and the Red Sox are, are, are kind of climbing up there, and the, it's great to see the Phillies doing well, which is, has which, been really and, nice. And, and fun to see the Phillies, but also surprising that the Nationals are where yeah. they are. Yeah, I mean, that, that division to me was the most sort of unpredictable, the NL East I'm talking about, just in the sense that I, I, I could have I talked myself into any one of those teams being pretty good. Maybe not exactly the Marlins. The, maybe <laughs> I mean, the Marlins. I kind of knew they would no, be terrible, they were but... But, uh, but otherwise, yeah. Well, let me run, run a, an analysis I did for, by, uh, over the last couple of days by you. Maybe you have some insights. So one of the things that I did is I went to Fangraphs and I added up. Well, they did it for me. <laughs> didn't have to do the, the, the work. The, num- the war, collective war on the offensive, on the defensive side. Well, I mean the pitching side yeah. and, and the position player side by each team. And I, and I um, built a – so and I compared – essentially compared the number of war to the actual number of wins. And it turns out that that's actually a very good forecast. It works mm-hmm. very well over over many seasons. It, it's, uh, it, it's calibrated, so you yeah. should expect it to do that. But one thing you can do at the, and early in the season is you, can, is you can see which teams are under, underperforming and overperforming their war on the field. Now, the war is, should be connected to what's on the field because mm-hmm. it's based on your results. And the but team, it's, it's not connected by construction. Like it's not, it's not right. like you. No. It's not like wars calculate that you take the team's wins and kind of partial it out to the different players. You know, each player kind of earns wins based on war, based exactly. on kind of their individual sort of success. And you'd kind of think you would add up essentially to team wins, but it wouldn't necessarily. It, it exactly certainly adds do up that. on average, yeah. but not an individual team basis. Yeah. And it's also not directly related to runs scored and runs and runs allowed. It's right. in, it's indirectly connected, but not directly. So interesting thing about both the Phillies and the Nationals is that they both have about the same number of wins as predicted by the runs scored and runs allowed. So it's not like they're they're winning. Uh, lots of close games or something of that nature. Yeah. Both teams are about the same. But the Nationals have more war than the Phillies, and they have an eight-game gap, at least wow. when I ran it. Yeah. So I thought that it was very you know odd, and it, I think maybe the answer has to do with the fact that the, Philly, the Nationals have gotten some great performances out of their top pit- pitchers, but no wins. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I mean one, I haven't like actually looked at it, um, but... Um, we the thing that we do have to take into account at this point in the season, we kind of talked about it indirectly when we were talking about the Yankees, is the schedule's still are very unbalanced, right? Yes, I mean of course, and, right, and right. so right. one could sort of, you know, with the same kind of kind of individual performance lose a lot more games if you're playing tougher teams early on. And and I don't actually know what imbalance there exists between the Phillies and Nationals. I don't watch them as closely as I do the Red Sox Yankees. Right now there's a huge imbalance between the Red Sox and Yankees in terms of kind of quality of opponents and that will of course equalize as the season goes on. But uh but that that's something to kind of take into we have to still be thinking about considering we're still in May. 
Well, let's uh, let's probably abandon baseball for the time being. As much as I hate to do that, we have uh, we have uh, quite a bit left of our show. So we actually have uh, uh, hockey that we're talking about on the on the yeah, half hour, no, and then Stanley we have Cup finals, Stanley Cup no, no. and we have tennis at at, at the nine o'clock hour. Um, but let's turn to a car- big events have happened in both. Both hockey and in basketball. Yeah. Um, so let's start with basketball. Let's let's kind of and and let's let's think about that. So the Warriors did what the Warriors do. Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean like it's it's sort of uh, it's a, you know it, I I think we it's I, I it was actually kind of exciting to get here. I really, I, I watched more closely these uh, a lot of the uh, East series um, that compared to the West series, but in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah they are. just by the tape. You so know? There, there's two anomalies I think that's worth yeah. discussing from an analytics perspective. One is that the Warriors were losing, were behind for so much of the series, so much of the games and so much of the series. And they, of course, won uh, four games to one. So they didn't even make much of it. They just sort of, you know... Uh, walked all over them, essentially. Without Kevin Durant. Without Kevin Durant. So that's the second thing. So the first thing is, what is unusual is to be behind so much and yet win four out of the five games. That's actually unusual. And mostly they did this by coming back strongly at the very end. Um, I don't think it's something that's so unusual to to have to ask uh, whether or not... Oh, no, it was... It was sorry, I mean, it was, wasn't out of five. It was four nothing. I guess I'm, um, uh, Matt just sent me a note saying that. I guess I thought there was at least one game that was very close. There was nothing that was even close. Wasn't there one game that was... No, it was not. See how much... I'm paying attention to the to this. This is like probably the the most uninteresting um, uh, league championship, division championship. Well, game. yeah, in in part because of the kind of peculiarities of the seeding, I feel like we got the, uh, several competitive series earlier. You know, I mean, yes, like the, well, the, Rockets, like the, Ro- the Rockets, the Rockets, Golden State was the one we were kind of looking for all season, and we thought that would be kind of the if there was a chance that Golden State would get would would get knocked out, it would be at that point. They didn't, of course, because right. they they're they Golden didn't. State, but <laughs> you know. So let me ask you a question. This is you, as you mentioned, they were without Kevin Durant, but there's actually a meme going around wondering are. Are the Warriors better without Kevin Durant? <laughs> no. I mean, short answer, no. <laughs> I, I mean, they are still amazingly good without Kevin Durant. I mean, like, uh, it, it, it's a it's a credit to the you know their team building and coaching that they ha- were able to kind of essentially not really lose much stride when when Kevin Durant went down. But I mean, I, I think any team would choose to have Kevin Durant in their lineup over not having him. I mean, there is something to the kind of you know one of one of the many Eric Bradlow principles that only one one guy can have the ball, you know, That's at, right. at, at, at a time in, in basketball. So you know, I, I think that when you have you know four or five other all stars on your team, that makes one of them makes the Curry. loss of one of them, you know, very you know a lot less dramatic than it would in in say losing your quarterback in football or something like that. But. Um, but I do think that there it is a real loss. I think, I, and I think they still do without Kevin Durant have less margin for error. They really need Steph Curry to be good in the absence of right. Kevin Durant. I mean, fortunately for them, Steph Curry is good in the absence of Durant. And he has been good, and yeah. he isn't always good. Particularly, no, no. Listen, I mean, he's a human being, a, a, anybody can have a yeah. bad game, but you know, now we're kind of asking the Golden State Warriors to somehow have four bad games. 
in one series. Well, I just don't see it happening. We don't see it happening. Let's just get back to this as we and shortly we'll, we'll move on to hockey. But one of the things that's so so this sort of typical, almost the hallmark of basketball players is that their basketball playoffs is they seem to be won by the team that's expected to win. Yeah. So much, so much so that this is you. You wonder it's quite whether predictable. Or not, yes, it is quite predictable. Um, and it is it is almost discouraging. I mean, uh, we had great we had great series with the Rockets, but it ended the way we thought it would have ended. Yeah, we had a great series. I mean, right now we're actually in the midst of a great series with Toronto and Milwaukee. Yeah, and what's going to happen with that? It's it's now two to two. We actually didn't expect this. No, because Milwaukee I, I, did kind I, I, of blow I thought, them out. I thought. I mean, certainly if it based on the first couple games of that series, I thought it was going to be, you know, another another sweep, basically. Right. Uh, but no, I mean, credit to Toronto for coming back. I mean, it, do, it does seem, you know, the the eastern side of, uh, of, of, of the... Um of the of the playoffs seem to be really like really dominated tight, by right? home f- and very dominated by home field advantage. Well, I mean, home- you know, it seems yeah. that that really seems to be. I mean, that was certainly the case in the Sixers Raptors series, um, and now it's the case in the Raptors Bucks series. Um, so, and I'm, I, I think even the Bucks Celtics series was. Well, I guess that one was well, home quite field advantage but. in basketball is the largest of the mm-hmm. four majors. It's yeah. just to review, it's it's basketball then football. Then hockey, then baseball. That's the ordering. Um, and uh, and hockey and baseball actually are getting closer to that fifty percent mark. Um, basketball used to be actually bigger, but it's still huge, and we're yeah. seeing it even even more more strongly in the playoffs. And and that's what's going on. I mean, we saw Toronto; they won that double overtime game, yep. which we probably didn't see because that was simultaneous to. What we were catching our eye earlier, which is, of course, the end, the finale of Game of Thrones. Yes. <laughs> I don't have to go down that hole um, here, but but that did catch our eye, and yeah. we did come back to the Toronto double overtime win. And I was surprised by that, and I still, it didn't really change my, my I guess, my posture. No, no, that no, point. that's right, that's right. No, so I mean, I, I think the second victory by Toronto uh, has done more to kind of convince me that, you know, they're in it for a long series here than that double, because at, at the point of double overtime, really, you're just talking about a coin flip as far as which team wins that right well that is your your the, the shane theory for our, our well, I mean, listeners have heard this uh, shane loves to talk about how the playoffs in baseball in particular yeah. are a coin flip and actually just to, to bring us back to we were talking about the, the san francisco giants um and their end of their dynasty well they never really were a dynasty in the sense of dominating they yeah. when they never got more than i don't think i think they got 90 90 wins once of all their their you know their leading teams and the reason why they wore championships was the double wild card and yeah. the randomness of playoffs and of course yeah. the dominance of a single player, which it, a pitcher in particular, which can have that effect. But in basketball, we 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 almost always see the team that's that making it close, which is interesting, yeah. and then kind of winning it in the seventh game. Um, and so maybe we'll get a seventh game for. Out of and, this and I kind of wonder, you know, maybe it is just sort of the structure. But I mean, basketball is. You know, there's the highest amount of scoring. There's kind of the least amount of randomness to a game. Um, so I think it just sort of by its structure allows sort of when when there is an actual, you know, kind of comparative advantage of one team over the other, then it just allows that kind of to right. to be kind of realized more often than other sports. I mean, hockey playoffs are much more unpredictable. Um in part, I think, because the kind of talent pool is a little bit more uniformly dispersed around the teams. And also because of the nature of the game, there's these kind of low scoring 
games are much more low scoring and there's more randomness in that scoring and I think that just kind of allows like you know underdogs teams that even don't have that necessarily a, a comparative advantage to to win out more often and right. that's sort of what we've seen the this year's NHL playoffs were well take us through decidedly that. So, unpredictable so right now we have we're basically the finals are set yeah is that the pre- finals are set and I think two teams that I don't think most people would have predicted would have been in the finals are in them but that's how it goes so let's hockey. review it where where were these two teams relative I think to Boston the field was before we began. The four seed and I'm so trying Boston to think wasn't bad. No, I mean, no, no, no. But no, St. Louis I think was the four or five seed as well. So I mean but but certainly, you know, the in the, this was kind of a unique uh hockey regular season in that there was a one seed in the East, Tampa Bay, that had Amazing, a historically right. good season, like one of the top five seasons by kind of point totals of all time, and gone in the first round. You know, the, the Calgary Flames, my hometown team, also, I mean, certainly by their standards, had a really, really good season, gone in the first round. Um, and you know, what happens? So, so what happens when a team like Tampa Bay or Calgary gets eliminated? If you can point to something during the game. If I had to point to something that kind of. That, fell that apart would be predictable yeah. about the NHL playoffs, hot goaltender. I still think it mostly comes down to having a hot goaltender. And that, you know, both Boston and St. Louis kind of have that right now. And you that's don't why interpret that as luck? Well, there's a little bit to that. I mean, well, a and, lucky and, and, goaltender? Well, I mean, luck, yes. I mean, when I say hot, I don't actually, I mean... To a certain extent, I, I guess I'm. Are almost, you saying they got better? Or no, they, no, no, they no, no, are, no, no. Hot, by hot, I do mean that they're sort of like they're kind of like I think in hockey for goaltending, you can kind of get in the zone, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not you know something that carries across season to season, but it, it it can get you through an entire playoff run where you're just kind of playing even better than your usual. You know, kind of. I mean, even if you're a good goaltender, you, you're playing a little bit better than your usual. And if you're a bad goaltender, you're playing, you know, even a little bit better than usual. Though there's not a lot of bad goaltenders in the playoffs by this point. Um, but and that's really what's sort of happening with Boston. Like Rask is unbelievable right now, and 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 Bennington. I watched a couple games of the Sharks uh, Blues series, and he was he was a real difference maker for them. It was pretty amazing. So, what does that mean to be hot as a goaltender? Obviously, it means blocking lots of shots. But yeah. what types of shots are you blocking? I mean, there's lots and lots of shots on goal. Some of them really have no chance of going in, and others are much harder. And so, uh, when a goaltender is hot, are they hot because they're they're blocking the shots that should go in, or are they just sort of I'm not. I, 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 I'm sure somebody who studied this could give a better answer. In my f- opinion, they're just sort of being in the zone for a goal to appears to ease your game kind of overall. You're you're certainly much less. You're, you're less likely to kind of make a bad move, like you know to make a bad goaltending play like you leave too much of one of your you know sides open or something like that but you also you know have a slightly higher probability of making these kind of spectacular plays that most goaltenders wouldn't make. So I, I think it, I think it just sort of is a it's just somehow an increase in performance overall, and, and I probably attribute too much of it to kind of hot goaltender, and you know there is a huge luck component and kind right. of like survivor bias to what I'm saying, um, but I do sort of think I mean you do sort of see to the extent that there's anything predictable about hockey, what you see is that you know the people that are, the teams that have won the Stanley Cup, their their goaltender just really turned it on come playoff time. That's how and, it works. And, it, and it's not it, – it's somewhat predictable in the sense that there were certain goaltenders that could do that, you know, season after season after season. I, th- I think of I, – I recall like Patrick Waugh for the Canadians and, or an Avalanche or, or Martin Brodeur for the Devils. I mean, one of the reasons those teams were essentially dynasties 
is that you know the, the those goaltenders could predictably do that every season in the playoffs whereas I think more often the case is you've got something like the Vegas Golden Knights last year where their goaltender was able to turn it on for one playoff run, but not necessarily the next season. So, I mean, one of the things about about uh, hockey, which we're looking forward to, to hearing from Mike Kelly in, in about uh, 10 minutes, he's coming on the show, he's a hop- hockey expert, analytics expert, is the data is um, really should be very revealing. One of the things that as a non-hockey person, it's very hard to kind of have standard statistics that I think can summarize yeah. what a goaltender does. I mean, one, yeah. one, for example, I mean, the save percentage is over 90%. So um, why is it over 90%? Is it because most of the shots are just not are easy to block? Or yeah, they... essentially. That's right. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, goaltenders fill up a lot of the space of a That's goal. Right, right, and right. so if you give a goaltender like, a, you know, an unobstructed view and, 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 and no deflections and stuff like that, they're going to make that save, you know, 95% of the time. It's just, you know, the, the art of scoring goals is about obstructing the view of the goaltender and deflecting the puck, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I think it is. I mean, you know, I, I would liken it essentially to, you know, the it, it is a very – goaltenders are very good at what they do. Um, kind of like, you know, a, a fielder is very good at catching like right, a fly ball, you know, right. if, if if there's nothing sort of like impeding them from doing that. Yeah, and that's actually the way the, the statistics now summarize. Um, and we almost, in, in baseball, we divide it up among plays for which there actually is a chance of missing. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's a chance of missing on every play, but we don't really count errors as part yeah. of the, um, there's a just, we just think of them as haphazard. Um, so base, in baseball, we kind of rate the difficulty of a play and then we give points or or probability points to a player depending on the, yeah. the difficulty. I guess we could probably do that in, in, in hockey and as I, well. And I think that saves. is probably kind of like what's what's happening kind of right now. And again, we, we, we'll we have to ask our guest about this. But like, you know, that I, I think sort of like trying to kind of measure the quality, the scoring potential of individual shots is going to give us, you know, a much kind of more fine-grained evaluation of what the goaltenders are doing. And kind of, you know, I guess that would help to, help to sort of like, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is somewhat conjecture. It's not something I've empirically looked at that like you know on sort of quote-unquote easy shots like you know unobstructive view um you goaltenders are going to do that you know without any deflections goaltenders are going to be at like 98 percent on those right okay so there's one uh one last major uh, event this past week which we have yet to talk about which was the pga yeah um and this is brooks kepka's yeah. gigantic win we'll and have to talk about this later in the show too when ha- eric yeah. comes back in because eric called this well, didn't yeah he? i don't i was I mean, he's ha- he's happily not sitting here right now because if he would he'd be gloating over this huh. um he absolutely called it we had a we had an over under yeah which we discussed last week nailed it and he just he should he, get like an extra point a, a for that point. For... he went nuts on on brooks kepka last week yeah. he said that guy is hot you know one of one of one of Eric's tendencies is to is to go with the narrative, and the narrative of of hotness is one of the standard well, standard ones, and he yeah. just was all over it. And apparently, he was. But I think in some way he is tailor made for this course. It's it's a course from that is hard. Uh, if uh, Brooke Kepka is not all that accurate, particularly on the fairways, and he wasn't, but he just doesn't get stuck. He's yeah. a huge guy. He hits it very far. Um, you know, uh, earlier in the show, Matt was telling me he just doesn't even like to play ho- um, golf. It's it's credible for a, a world championship level. Play. Player who's uh, who, who actually started in hockey as a kid and for whatever reason got injured and had to end up playing golf and here he is winning these major tournaments. But the Jeez, real surprise, that was his fallback. That was his fallback. Huh. Um, the real the real of course surprise to us was was Tiger Woods. Yeah, who was didn't even make the cut and seemed to miss. 
um, unbelievable. Yeah, no, I mean, simple putts. That, that's right. I mean, certainly, I <laughs> I got destroyed in the over unders as a consequence of that. We did but... and again to Eric. Eric said oh, Tiger won't play well because he hasn't played since the Masters. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's sort of like, and it actually kind of um, that that's sort of like, uh, I mean, Eric, you know, I, and I think we we didn't give much credence to this idea that, you know, players can kind of get rusty. Oh, I mean, I, I, was kind of, I was kind of assuming, too, that, like, when he said, you know, when Tiger wasn't playing since the Masters, he was probably still playing golf yeah, on his right. He just hasn't time. played it he just tournament. wasn't doing it competitively. But, yeah, and I don't know the extent to which um, – I don't even know if Tiger knows the extent to which that layoff was what was really kind of caused him to have a bad couple days of golf or whether there was some kind of mechanical issue involved or whatever. Um, but it's, it's it's interesting to kind of sort of that, – that concept of rust and, and, and waiting time for performance is an interesting one and it's going to kind of come up again. Um, it, it, it actually is a concept that I think we should talk about a lot with, with hockey – and basketball, because in both hockey and basketball, an interesting thing about this year's playoffs is we're, we're going to have a team. Like Boston's been sitting, waiting for St. Louis to finish this off right, for like right. a week. And I don't think the, the Warriors are going to be waiting the final, for it. I don't think the final start for like another few days. Um, and the Warriors are going to be sitting around waiting for this thing to, to, right. to um, end. And the extent to which that there's an effect of kind of like, you know, when one team was waiting a long time for the other series to finish, you could argue yourself into an advantage or disadvantage for that, right? Of course. And and I don't know exactly. You can you argue know. yourself practically into yeah. any position. That's one of the, the, one of the magic or the difficulties of doing analytical analysis is you can just turn yourself around in circles, yeah. telling a story to get yourself anywhere. So I so what do you think wins out here? Let's let's, let's talk yeah. to hockey. Uh, is, does Boston benefit uh, worse off or neutral the fact that they have a, a, a week to hang around? I think, given just how physically grueling hockey is, and, and I, I think the week off is probably a good thing. Right. I don't I don't think. Uh, but again, you know, the the one thing I you know the one. The one counter I saw, I, overall, I feel like the first order effect is probably that, you know, the more rest you can get during a playoff run the ho- in, 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 in hockey, the better. The, the only downside of that is, you know, I, I was babbling on for, for many minutes about, like, you know, this goaltender, like, kind of hot goaltender zone that I think, you know, is, is, is something, a part of most uh, teams, hockey teams' playoff experience. And do, does does like having like a week or ten days knock you out of that zone potentially? Because that be. could have a dramatic. So effect. the line right now runs as the. As, I'll actually let you make a little guess. Where do you think who, you you know who the favorite is? I would. Well, I think the Bruins. Will the be Bruins favored. are the favorite, um, and I they the are, favored are favored by about looks like it's minus one sixty. So minus one sixty is approximately sixty some odd percent. You oh, have the over okay. round. So the over round is is uh, is that extra juice that the gamblers build so they can make. Money, Does Boston have home field? Who's home field? Or I'm home not sure. Advantage. I'll wait yeah, for that, that, to worth, tell that's us. That's worth noting, and, but uh, and that is worth noting because I mean, as we talk about hockey, it is one of the sports where um, yeah, Boston is home. But Boston is home. Um, yeah. It is it, it is where every little advantage you can get matters because yeah. it's essentially a coin toss. So I, I'm actually sixty forty sounds a little high, just given the you know. I mean, I would given the randomness in soccer, but well, in hockey, I, and, I think hockey. Right. Um, yeah, and so, and it doesn't start till Monday. Okay, all right. So yeah, I mean that's going to be that's a long layoff. Wow. So uh, yeah, I, I I would say no. I, I mean I, I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't have a strong feeling against those odds. I think Boston should be favored in part because 
they've just looked a little bit more impressive in the playoffs in general, and also because of of, of the home ice advantage. Right, right. Home ice advantage. The fact that they've had a, a huge layoff, which I think is I think is probably to their advantage because they have. The rest, yeah, time. and I think the Warriors also will have this long rest. Of course, they're going to be the the favorite I mean, team. I mean, in basketball, miles. it's sort of like we're not going to get a real test of this rest versus whatever because the Warriors are just so much better <laughs> right. of a team. Oh than yeah, that's I mean, right. They do it you because know, they're winning. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, that that concludes our uh, first quarter of our show where we did our rundown of the things that the sporting events that not only caught our eye but those that did not. We enjoyed having a nice conversation about hockey and the the uh, coming finals of the Stanley Cup playoffs. We know less about analytics than we'd like. Um, I know less about hockey than most, um, but we do have an expert hockey guest. We have Mike Kelly, who is a hockey analyst for the Sports Network, which is the Canadian version of ESPN. I didn't know that. And the NHL Network. And he also works with data-driven storytelling platform The Point. And he is particularly uh, focused on hockey analytics, which is apropos. Uh, Mike, welcome to Morton, Morton Moneyball. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really fun to have you as we prepare for the Stanley Cup. Um, I'm going to be honest. Um, I don't know if you heard my intro. I don't know that much about hockey, and I'm starting to learn a bit more because it's a popular sport. There are lots of uh, lots of new data coming online. I have students who are interested in it, and have been bringing me some of their analyses. Uh, Shane is, uh, is from Canada, so it is uh, much more of an obsession up north, uh, <laughs> which is where you are, I gather. You're in Canada right now yeah yeah i live in montreal and uh yeah it's an it's an obsession i would say in canada and certainly montreal uh it's uh, it's where the NHL was founded. So that's a lot right. Of passionate hockey fans here. I, I was in Montreal in December, and I and I opened up the newspapers, and that's all I could find was was hockey. <laughs> <laughs> it's hockey all day. I sat yep, at the, the yep. airport bar, and it was hockey on all the screens, um, which is which is uh, certainly different from the United States. So let me ask you. So hockey is of course very interesting sport, and it has certainly made the leap to modern data analytics, which we know very little about. We do know that they're now starting to track, just as they are in all the other sports, um, the, the position of the puck, the players, um, what's actually going on the ice. But I want to rewind a little bit to before there was any of this stat tracking data, when all we had was sort of, I guess, play level data. Um, I don't even know what the basic unit of a, I guess, a, of, a, of a play that would enter a field into a, a database. But so let's roll back and, and let me ask you a couple of questions. What was hockey analytics like before there was tracking? What are the metrics that we use to evaluate performance on the, on the, uh, on the ice? Well, the, the tracking technology that the NHL is working on currently um, obviously hasn't been um, unveiled or perfected yet. So we're, we're still in that age of oh. pre-player tracking, really. Um, that's something that they're hoping to, to have in place next season. They've done some tests with it um, at the All-Star game, a, a couple regular season games this year as well. Um, but when, when so, did data come online that tells you like where the shot, where the, where the player was when he took the shot? Was that, that's been around for a while? Yeah, so I work with a company, Sport Logic, in Montreal, okay. and uh, we're an industry leader in terms of providing data analytics to uh, professional uh, organizations, uh, professional leagues as well. Uh, we do a lot of media work, which is obviously where I'm involved. Um, and, and this company's been around for about four years. So, um, you know, I was working, um, I want to say about five, six years ago at the NHL Network as a host. Uh, my background being in broadcasting. And 
you know, I do these shows and it'd be your typical setup where it's, it's me and an ex player or an ex coach. And we're talking about the game and, um, you know, I don't have enough, uh, a pretty enough face just, just to sit there and throw to commercial when they're done talking. So I wanted to find a way to be a part of the conversation and, and add something myself. So uh, I've always been interested in statistics uh, and the numbers side of the game. So I reached out to, um, you know, companies that do this kind of micro tracking and, you know, started becoming familiar with, with their information. Um, like you talk about where, where shots are being taken on the ice. So how did, how did they collect events. that? Did they collect it by watching the video? Is that since they don't have tracking? Is that where, where this company puts, puts its data together? So it's, it's optical tracking with sport logic and, and the way that mm-hmm. it's being collected right now, the event data that's being collected is through um, a computer vision tracking system that's taken off the single broadcast feed. So the same way that you would watch a hockey game on your television, uh, there's algorithms in place that detect uh, all the events that occur on the ice, uh, certainly a lot more granular than uh, what's being currently provided by the NHL. I and see, from I that, see. you're able to glean a whole bunch of insights because we're collecting um, you know, tens of thousands of data points every game. Okay, so let's roll back even before that. So let's go back to the before there was even this video-based uh, uh, image uh, detection technology, and let's roll back before you had that and all you had was something else. What did you use analytically to describe the what happened on the ice before you had the video data? Well, it was just the publicly available information at the time. Just um, shots? I mean, what do you use? I mean, what, what describes your performance other than the, the number of goals you scored? Sure. So you would use um, you would use things like shots for, shots against, shot attempts for and against. Um, in, in the public sphere, it started to get a little bit more sophisticated that way, um, where the, the you know predictability grew a little bit based on what you're looking at. So, um, but but yeah, it was everything that you could find right now, basically on NHL.com, in scraping mm-hmm. that that data um, and then trying to glean insights out of that. Um, so before. You know, for me, anyways, from a media broadcast standpoint, it was more about, you know, what what do I think interests the fans at home watching the game? And it's anomaly detection is really what it is. And it's similar to what I do today, just with a much richer data set, is you're looking for anomalies in the game that can explain certain things and, and provide insights, um, you know, show where there are potentially competitive advantages for certain teams and matchups. Um, but back when I was just working in broadcast with the publicly available information, it was really simple, but it followed the same formula. And so what what kind of like now that you're working with sort of the, you know, this video capture data, essentially, what are some of the kind of things that you kind of feel are, are aspects of the game that are, are under or overemphasized kind of by the public that's still working with that old, you know, the, the, the historically old data. So things like, you know, like as, 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 as an example, I, I, I've seen work on like things like, you know, zone possession and, and, and stuff like that. Um, is, is that kind of at the forefront of how teams are thinking about like competitive advantage right now? And also please define as zone possession. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, the, the way that we define puck possession is in the literal sense. It's how often you have the puck in your stick. Um, there publicly, uh, you know, people for years have used uh, shot attempts as a proxy for puck possession. Um, having seen both sides of the fence, I can tell you there's not really a meaningful correlation between the two. Um, and that's separate from any kind of predictive value, but it, the, the two just don't connect as well as um, I would be comfortable in saying that one is a proxy for the other. So, you know, what are, what are teams looking at? Again, we can, we can event and define literally... Uh, almost everything that happens on the ice. So 
Um, you can talk about how often a team has the puck in the offensive zone, for instance, or a particular player. You can talk about where their shots are coming from, um, expected goal model that, that factors in not just how many shots you get and where you shoot from, but what occurs before the shot. Did you make the goalie move laterally? Did the puck go from uh, one side of the slot to the other? Um, who's shooting the, the puck from a certain area? You know, Alex Ovechkin shooting the puck from the left face-off circle, for instance, is a lot different than, you know, pick somebody else, uh, a fourth-line player. Wait, wait, hold on a second. But I always thought that expected, the whole point of the expected model was to average over the player so you could figure out which players are better than average. So, of course, if you're trying to predict the probability of a particular shot going in for a, for different players, they would vary. But isn't the idea behind an expected model to be sort of the generic player? Well, you can look at you can look at it both ways. If I want to know the expected goal value of a particular player shooting from a particular area, that's where we would use that model. If, if you want the average, you know, shooting or scoring rate from a certain area, so if you look at the slot, for instance, which is talked about often in hockey as a prime scoring area, uh, Bruce Cassidy referenced it the other day saying, you know, the analytic that he looks at the most is, do we win the slot battle at five on five? Um, and there is predictive value there. Yeah, you can look at that and say the average player across the league, the average forward in the NHL scores on 17% of their shots from there. Wait, so, um, so hold on, just backtrack. So the slot is, is that the area right in front of the goal, or what exactly is the, how you define that? It's a home plate area. It's, there's, a, there's a pretty standard definition for it across hockey, um, where it goes from the crease out to the face-off dots on each side and up to the top of the circle and across, and it ends up looking like a, a home plate. So, so um, that's... I was going to just kind of ask when you're talking about like sort of setting up these expected goals. The other way in which I've sort of seen these used is evaluating goaltenders, like a more sort of sophisticated version of evaluating goaltenders, where it's not just sort of you know how many you know your save percentage or or, or it, it it's it's or it's, it's taking into <laughs> account the difficulty of each shot that you faced. And and I guess you're sort of what you're describing is an even more advanced version that I haven't seen before, where you're you're also talking about whether or not the goalie had to move laterally before before a shot is uh taken. So. Yeah, um, can you sort of talk? Movement is is is, uh, is a big part of of getting the the best expected goal value that you can you can possibly get. There's, you know, that's a critical factor in something that we measure. And you look at you know goals against average, for instance, is something that um, less less and less people are, are really valuing in terms of uh, evaluating a goaltender because of how dependent it is on the team in front of them. Um, I'd say the same thing about save percentage. I'd even say the same thing about you, you want to get into things like high danger save percentage shots from the slot, for instance. Uh, a lot different if your defending team in front of you is allowing a lot of these cross ice passes and making the goalie move post to post than if you're getting these square shots um, from from north south right in front of you. So, are you, you also able to are you so also able to measure through the the, the uh, video system kind of like how obstructed the goaltender is when they're facing these shots? Yeah. All right, so, so yeah. let me so let me let's focus on this for a minute because before in our, our first half hour we were talking about what contributes to the say the randomness of the or the seeming or apparent randomness of the outcome of hockey playoffs in particular, and Shane's conjecture uh, was largely to to the goaltender's performance. 
are you able to measure that? And do you think that's that's it? If if you had to point to one thing that contributes to the randomness, or is it just that the the teams are actually quite equal, and then at the end, it's it's hard to determine. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, goaltending is the most random position you can you can try to evaluate in hockey. It's you know, Martin Jones came into the playoffs for San Jose by far this season the worst of any playoff goaltender in terms of. Um, you know, one measure that I use in looking at goaltenders is actual versus expected goals against. Uh, and then, are you know, are you a plus or are you a minus in that area and by how much? So if you take expected goal values and, and look at uh, essentially what league average goaltending is on any type of shot that you can face, um, does the goaltender perform above that or below it? Uh, Martin Jones was the only starting goalie to come into the playoffs out of the 16 teams who for the season had performed below league average. And in the first four games against Vegas, he was the Martin Jones we saw in the regular season, and then he flipped a switch. That's impossible to predict. Um, certainly he's capable of doing it. We've seen him play well in the past, but you just you don't know with goalies. There, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Where do you think um, it comes from? Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued kind of because you, you, you talked about flipping a switch. You know, I, I kind of feel like I see this season after season in hockey where, you know, a goaltender will kind of somehow – into a different kind of, you know, a different zone, zone of performance yeah. or, or, or elevate their performance in a way that essentially carries their team to the Stanley Cup. And I mean, for some goaltenders, it's predictable, you know, like Mortan Brodeur, it was kind of predictable that he would be able to do that. But then you've got these, you know, the Joneses of the world um, that happened just in one random season. Is it kind of predictable? Do you kind of see it happening as systematically as I do? I mean, if it was predictable, it, you know, it would be uh, it would be incredibly valuable for teams yeah. to know what goalies can get yeah. hot and take you to a cup final. Yeah, it's, no, that's right. It's not that easy, but you know, it, it, there are goalies that, it, and like there are defensemen and like there are forwards, where you can look at their underlying numbers and say, okay, you know what, this guy, if he if he plays for a certain team or if he gets more of a role and, and can potentially become a starting goalie, play 40, 50, 60 games. You know, we think based on what we've seen uh, in our numbers that he's a guy that can be uh, an adequate starting goaltender. But then, you know, the one thing that I really make sure that I do and that I'm careful with is never to make um, a definitive assessment on any analysis that I do solely based on the numbers that I look at. It's obviously a huge part of what I do, um, but there's there's a lot of other components uh, that that go into understanding the game. And I, I talk to a lot of guys that play the game currently at the pro level and used to play. And, you know, with goalies, I can take a look at a guy that's played 25 games as a backup the last few years and has phenomenal numbers. Um, and I've had this conversation with a friend of mine who played goalie in the league for almost 20 years. And I said, you know, hey, well, this is a guy that maybe should get a look as a starting goalie. And first thing that he pointed out was, you know, starting 60 games is completely different than starting 20 or 25 from a mental standpoint, from a physical standpoint. Um, and some guys just aren't capable of doing it. Mm-hmm. So you can have these phenomenal league high numbers in 20, 25 game sample sets. doesn't mean it's going to translate to 60, 65 games. And that's where I think goaltending is similar to, uh, you know, basketball. It makes me think, it makes me think of relief pitching in baseball where, sure. where, you know, somebody can kind of be excellent in, in, in kind of a shortened setting, but if you want to try and stretch them out, uh, they won't somehow weaknesses get exposed, et cetera. And, and, and they they can't sustain that success over an entire season. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, with one thing that I've heard with, with people that, uh, have covered the sharks, uh, day to day, 
um, and, and know more about the team on a personal level um, is that Martin Jones maybe was, you know, relying positionally too much for too long and got back to kind of using his reflexes and, 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 you know, actually um, being a little more acrobatic in the net and, and not just trying to block shots. Maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. Um, there's so much that goes beyond the numbers when it comes to goaltenders and how they're going to perform um, that it, it makes it very difficult to speculate when a guy might get hot or when he might cool down. Well, let me just add that one of the things about analysts in sports, we tend to be very skeptical about the idea that someone turns into somebody else that's different. Um, although we we argue that it does occasionally happen, but one of the longstanding uh, analogies we might make here is is the basketball season where one player might just, it's a long, long season, almost everybody makes the playoffs of any quality, and that they just become different play- players in the playoffs. And um, I feel like almost that's what I might be hearing from you about goaltenders is that 60, you know, 60, 80 games is really, really hard. And that in the playoffs, we have more time between games. Um, you can just really bring all you what you have to, to the to the fore. And that makes potentially makes the difference. Would you agree with that sen- sentiment or am I just just guessing? No, I, I think there's some truth in that. Um, I, I think there are guys who can hit the high level like Tuka Rask is, is playing right now in Boston. Um, and he's been a guy who's been a little bit inconsistent over the last few years. If you look at the regular season, um, but he has he has that that top gear that he can hit. There are guys that don't have that gear um, that can't get there. Right. Um, there are guys that can outplay two Karask and, and goalies like that over a four or seven game stretch uh, at any given point. Um, there's there's enough parity in the position in the in the National Hockey League to do that. But there there are only a certain amount of guys that can hit that top level where they're stopping. 95% of shots in a series. 95 is um, amazing. Um, I just yeah, want to introduce which, our colleague, uh, Eric Bradley, who just walked in, and he actually w- would like to uh, jump into the conversation. Yeah, so uh, nice to talk to you. One of the questions, actually, I'm looking at my colleague, Shane Jensen. Uh, one of the things we talked about in the NFL season, I'd like to see if it relates to the NHL, is one of the things that we talked about about Bill Belichick as a great coach is he'll actually mm-hmm. experiment with stuff during the season to figure out what works for his team. Does that happen in the NHL? Like maybe, for example, a goal, the team said we could win 55 games or 50 games, but we'd rather be a better playoff team by figuring out what works for us. Does that happen in the NHL or no? There's not any kind of, I'll call it, long-range strategic planning where the regular season really is just the training ground for the playoffs. I think there is with, with certain teams, and I, I've said it for a while, and I believe that, that hockey does not experiment nearly enough compared to other sports. It, I think hockey is a much more situational game um, than the way that it's coached and the way that it's played. Um, and, and I get it. The regular season's a grind. It's 82 games. You can't do a full prep for every single opponent you're going to face every single um, you know second day. In the NFL, you have a week to prep for an opponent. So there are some differences there, but you know, I look at a team like the Toronto Maple Leafs this season. You knew they were going to make the playoffs. Um, they knew they were going to make the playoffs early on. The, the way that they played the game fluctuated so much at different times of the year that you have to believe that Mike Babcock was tinkering with certain things to try to get his team ready for what we all knew was going to happen, a first-round matchup against the Boston Bruins. So t- t- um, what, just to interrupt here, it's very important for me to understand. What can you actually yeah. experiment with, and what do they experiment with? What are the variables? So for the last couple of years, Toronto, um, and again, not that not that having the puck in the offensive zone automatically means you are the better team or you're going to score a lot. 
Um, it's just a byproduct of how certain teams try to play. Uh, There are a lot of teams that don't have a lot of offensive zone puck possession but are very high-scoring teams because Mm -hmm. they create a lot of offense off the rush. They get into the zone and they score. They don't need to have the puck in the offensive zone for a long time. So for, for Toronto, as an example, the last couple of years, they haven't been a top offensive zone puck possession team, and they weren't in the first couple months of the season. And then all of a sudden, almost overnight for a month or two, they were one of the top offensive zone puck possession teams in the NHL. And Mike Babcock talked repeatedly about how he wanted to own the puck and he wanted to possess the puck in the offensive zone. Um, so when you look at the way that he talked about the game and you look at the numbers that go behind it, there was, uh, there was a, a purposeful switch in the way that they played. It didn't translate into more wins, but this is, again, I think an example of trying to uh, determine what the best way to play is going forward to that uh, expectation that you're going to have of we're going to play the Boston Bruins. Um, we have to find a way to try to beat this team and know that we can play a different type of game if we want to. So I think you do see it. I don't think you see it enough, though, is the point. Um, w- when you talk about the situational nature of, of how you can play the game of hockey, um, I'd like to see you know a, a lot more variety on power plays. I-, I take a look at Boston, Carolina, for instance, the, the series that that just happened in the Eastern Conference Final. Boston swept Carolina in four games. I think they scored seven power play goals. They absolutely torched the Hurricanes. And, you know, I was expecting a child right before the series, so I didn't dig <laughs> into that one too much when right. it started. But I, I sent one tweet out before that series, and I said, Carolina cannot defend on the penalty kill the way they have been because Boston will kill them. They, they are an aggressive puck pursuit team on the penalty kill. They like to go after you and try to force you into mistakes. Boston is too skilled. They will pick you apart and get you out of position. Um, and what, what happens, that's exactly what happened. Boston had so many opportunities where they had guys wide open in front of the net because they're too skilled. That's amazing. And, and over the course of an 82-game season, you can play that way and you can beat a lot of teams that way because a lot of teams aren't Boston. Yeah, I can understand. Listen, Mike, we, we have to bring this uh, interview to a close. It's been terrific having you on our show. Um, I've learned, it's been very illuminating for me to learn more about, about hockey. So thanks for joining us um, all the way in from Montreal. This has been the conclusion of our first hour of Wharton Moneyball. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back soon. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Wharton Moneyball, where sports and statistics collide to create something fun and interesting. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business, and I'm joined in the studio this morning with Shane Jensen, another professor of statistics, and for the rest of our show, Eric Bradlow, professor of statistics and marketing, although he usually puts the marketing first. We like to, to always remind Eric that he is a professor. We'll of take statistics. as much ownership of Eric as we can. <laughs> I appreciate it. That's very kind of you to say. And uh, we, are, um, we are transitioning a little bit to a new sport, which we haven't been talking about too much over the last few months because it's kind of the down season for tennis. But the French Open... Um, tournament is coming up, so that gives us um, some interest to think about uh, what's happening there in tennis. And to lead us through those conversations, we have Craig, Osha- uh, Craig Osha- O'Shaughnessy, um, who was widely recognized as a world leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy, and uh, that should be an interesting topic. He's a strategy analyst for the ATP Tour, Wimbledon, the Australian Open, Team Djokovic, and the New York Times. And he's also the founder of Brain Game Tennis 
and you can follow him on Twitter at Brain Game Tennis. So, Craig, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Gentlemen, good morning. It's great to be talking with you again, talking stats, talking tennis, and um, I, I always enjoy coming on your show. Great. Where are you calling, uh, calling us from, Craig? Well, this morning... Austin, Texas. Uh, a few days ago, it was Rome, uh, there for the, the right. Masters 1000, and on Friday, I got it back to Paris. So, back home for five days and, and um, spend time with the family and spend time in Austin and then back to Europe. So, I feel like I commute to Europe at this time of year. Excellent. So let's. We want to. What immediately caught our eye about your your little short bio there is what does it mean to be a strategy analyst, particularly for say Team Djokovic. Yeah, so tennis looks like a game of pinball. You know, sometimes players are going down the line, sometimes cross-court, a ball comes to the middle. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a guy hits a forehand on the exact same ball, he hits a backhand on the next shot. Um, the pinball effect is an illusion. Tennis is a game of repeatable patterns, and you have four elements to a point, serving, returning, rallying, and approaching the net. And in each of those, you have higher percentage patterns of play. Is it better to serve out wide in the juice court? Is it better to serve down the tee? And you're looking at how many times am I likely to make it and what is my win percentages? So that's what I focus on. And it really just comes from the time coaching on tour, recording the players' matches with a camcorder I hung at the back of the court, analyzing it in Dartfish software and breaking it down by patterns of play. So typically when we look at a match, we look at it chronologically from start to finish, which is exactly the worst way to look at something. You want to look at it by patterns. Let's have a look at all the first serves out wide. How many did you make? What was your win percentage? Where did the ball come back in play? Did you hit a forehand or backhand? What area of the court did you initially attack? So that's what I do. I, I break it down into these patterns. Um, I look at the percentages to figure out which ones are better than the others, and, and I teach that, and, and Novak is somebody I've worked with for over two years, and we have a great relationship. Marion Vider is also the head coach, and I advise both of those guys on what Novak does well so he understands those patterns and also how to best match up against opponents. So, Craig, this is Eric Bradlow. It's great to have you back on the show. As you okay. may remember, I'm the, I'm the big tennis guy on our show. Yes, I, I love the sport of tennis. I watch every tournament, every great. tournament, um, <laughs> and so uh, not as much tennis as you see, but... Let me ask you a question. One of the things we as statisticians talk about is uncertainty, unpredictability as an advantage for a player. So we just obviously had the finals the other day between uh, Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic. How much does Nadal or Djokovic play to their patterns? Or in some sense, you know, it's kind of like the Princess right. Bride. If I know that you know that I know. <laughs> so yeah. they all have they all have strategy analysts and statisticians, if you yeah. like, saying Novak hits this way, Nadal hits this way. Is it ever, this is my question to you, both as a teacher and as a strategy analyst, yeah. you know what Novak and Rafa are best at, but sometimes yeah. maybe is it worth playing your second best just to mix it up so they can't predict exactly? Yeah, so the way that that breaks down, you put every pattern into two areas. You have primary patterns that you're going to run seven to eight times out of ten. Those are your higher percentage patterns, those what match with your game style really well. Um, then you have secondary patterns that you run two or three times out of ten, such as drop shots. Um, now, 
You know, Novak hit 12 drop shots in that Rome final, but that Rome final was a different animal. You've got, you know, Novak coming through with night matches, long three-setters against Del Potro, long three-setters against Schwartzman. I, I think the player that plays it, so they put one semi at 4 p.m. and the other semi at 9 p.m., and I think for eight straight years, the player that played at 4 p.m. has won the tournament because playing so late again and again, once you once you start on the late schedule, you stay on the late schedule. You don't, you know, you don't switch back and forth. So um, Novak had a tough one there. The two semis were, were draining. Playing at night is tough. Coming back in the day is tough. Playing the Dow on his favorite surface at sea level, which is a big deal. Is but why is so, it um, why is it a big deal to, for him to play at sea level? Speed of court, speed, speed through the air and the speed of court. So when Tsitsipas beat Nadal in Madrid, which is, you know, a relative altitude there, um, great win, one of the best wins of his career, then he backs up and plays him in Rome and gets defeated. The first thing he said when he came off the court in an interview was, you know, what is it, you know, what is it like to play Rafa here versus Madrid? Why did you win? By, why did you lose? The first thing he said is that when I hit the ball in Rome, it doesn't do nearly as much. It's not as fast through the air. The court is a little bit slower in Rome. The air is slower in Rome. So balls that would either be a winner or he would put massive pressure on Rafa through time or court position in, in Madrid, that exact same ball is not hurting Rafa um, nearly as much in Rome. So you, you certainly, to beat Rafa in Rome, you... Uh, certainly for Tsitsipas, is, is definitely to dip into the secondary tactics, which are, I'm going to serve and volley a little bit more, I'm going to hold the baseline a little bit more, I'm going to attack the net a little bit more, and take it away from that traditional higher, longer, deeper-in-the-court baseline rally against Nadal because he's just so incredibly good, and he found his form. Not so good in Monte Carlo, not so good in Barcelona, not so good in um, in Madrid, you know, semifinals all round, and then he found his form and he found his forehand. And that, that those little nuances in the game um, got wrapped for the title in Rome this year. So this, this uh, really intriguing talk of kind of primary versus secondary patterns for every player has got me, you know, my the analogy that immediately sprung to my mind is, you know, in baseball, pitchers have kind of their primary pitch, and then they've got secondary yeah. pitches to keep the, the the batters guessing. But of course, in baseball, they've got a catcher and a coach kind of coaching them, kind of pitch by pitch through that process. How much is there sort of in game coaching? Uh, you know, how much is in game coaching kind of changing the adapting the patterns of of, of Nadal and, and Djokovic during a match based on what's already happened. Why well, isn't it illegal to coach in, in during during the match? Isn't that Well, it, yes it is. Yes it is illegal. Um, on the women's tour you can have the coach come out at, at select times. Um, on the men's tour it, it's a no you are not allowed to do it, but you know I sat on the side of the court for several matches in Rome and you know, it's just one of those things where you've got so much on the line, and whether it's ranking points and, and career direction, um, you know, it, it's just a, a part of our sport that coaches are going to infuse themselves just a little bit, just enough. You know, it could be a word here, it could be a nod there, it could be a push of the hands here. Um, it happens all the time, and. You know, there's sort of this code in tennis where the, you know the umpire is going to look at it, and if it's not too overt, if it's if it's, if mm -hmm. it's not, you know, the, the guy standing up and pointing or yelling out obvious words, 
Um, you know, it, it, it's done and it's subtle and it's below the radar. Um, but, you know, officially, if, if the umpire looks at the, the coach and says, hey, that's a little too much, um, he can give a warning, which, you know, as we saw happen in the US Open final with Serena, but you're not allowed to do it. But what happens where the players get the keys for whether you dip into primary or secondary is the point score. So it's essentially everything breaks down to do I really need this point or do I not really need this point? So at three all, 30 all, the player really needs that point. So you are going to expect them to go to their primary patterns. Um, you know, for, for some players, it's serving out wide in the juice court. So you'll sit on that a little bit more. Now, in that situation, if the server elects to go down the tee, then sometimes you say, okay, maybe he outsmarted me in this situation. But the other element is, oh, he's going to his secondary pattern on the big point, which is not good for him, which is showing he's either panicking or he's rolling the dice or he feels that he needs to dip into these lower percentage patterns to stay with you. So sometimes it's a real positive if you see a secondary pattern in a big point because it shows the player you know, is a little bit nervous out there or having to, to pressure too much and go away from what they want to do. Let me, let me interrupt by asking one, I think, important question that relates to an earlier question we asked of our guest. Is there any experimentation do you do with the players in asking them to try to try on different strategies? And if there is any experimentation, when would you do it? You do it more when the scoreboard doesn't pressure you. So at 40 love and love 40, those are the obvious ones. You know, at 40 love, you're about a 98 to 99% chance of winning the game. At 40 15, you're still 92%. So it doesn't really matter. It's, it's a little bit of a throwaway point there. So if you are going to experiment, you know, let's call it the serve and volley play. You know, I remember Martina Hingis, you know, if she got up 40 love in a game and there wasn't a lot of serve and volley in women's tennis. But Martina regularly would serve and volley at 40 love to throw a different pattern of play in there, to confuse the opponent. And you're hoping that the opponent doesn't attach the, the, the secondary strategy with the scoreline. So it's like, okay, they served and volleyed. I don't remember whether it was a 40 love or 30 all when they really needed a point. So point scoring a game is going to affect that a lot. So, Craig, this is Eric Bradlow again. One of the stats we love talking about in all sports is how many players do you have to go down for, let's say at the moment, for there to be 50% of the odds? In other words, if I give you a certain number of players, I'll take the rest of the field. So let's take the French Open, 128. How many players would you need to take, let's say, where you feel comfortable you have a 50% chance? Is it just two, like Nadal and Djokovic, and you'll give me the other 126 uh, players? Uh, maybe even just one. Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it would be. Maybe it's just Nadal. Yeah. How, how, how much, like, for example, in recent tournaments, theme has played, team has played particularly well. Tsitsipas mm -hmm. has played particularly well. Obviously, mm -hmm. Federer is a threat on any day conceptually against anybody, even though he's got a, yeah. he had a slight injury in Rome. How many players do you have to take to feel confident that you'd be at 50%? One. So Nadal, huh? Yeah, it, it's almost always one. Um, you know, for this tournament, you know, I remember th this conversation I had. I was in Toronto um, coaching Kevin Anderson at the time. I met a guy there who, you know, is a tennis nut, and he said, you know, are you going to be at the U.S. Open? And, and I said, yes, I'll be. He's like, well, I'm going to be there too. Let's have a bet. You know, a, a casual, friendly bet on who's going to win the tournament. And I said, I'll take Nadal, and you take everybody else. And and my premonition was, 
that Rafa did an interview in Toronto and they said, you know, how well do you think you're going to do at the US Open? And he was very specific and very determined and said, you know, I'm setting my goals. I'm setting my hardcore season. My focus is squarely on the US Open. And that's all. He was already in good form. But as soon as I heard that, I'm like, this guy is, is narrowed down his focus and that's his goal. And I'm all in with that. So a lot of times, you know, at the Australian Open this year, obviously Novak. Novak's your one guy. Um, right. At Roland Garros this year, certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, you would take Nadal. Now, if you take two and go with Novak and Rafa, you, you've got a fantastic chance. Right. The well, other guys, yes, team has done well. Yes, he's, he's a very good clay court player. But Roland Garros is a different animal. It's a different stage. That hard court there bounces so much, and it gives such an advantage to Rafa. So, you know, you better be on your game, and he better be off his game, and he better have been tested throughout the tournament. He better have gone five sets and, you know, have some doubt about his game. Certainly he had doubt in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. That doubt seems to have gone. So what a- let me just follow this up, because Nadal is uh, actually over 50% under the betting line easily. Um but you said this, in, let's just broaden it. Would you say this is true specifically about the French, which Nadal has dominated? I, w- I would argue it's got to be certainly only one for that. For the U.S. Open, Wimbledon, would you also say it's one? Or is that typically the case, or is it a couple? No, yeah, it'd be a couple at, at those events. Yeah. You know, right now for Wimbledon, goodness, I mean, Rafa is, is certainly, um, you, you know, a, a favorite there. Novak is certainly a favorite there. And you get some of those bigger servers. Kevin Anderson's been out the entire spring uh, with an injury. John Isner's been out with an injury. So, you know, you, you've got to do well. You don't just go to a slam and go, I've been, on, I've been in Bermuda for the last month and I'm fresh as a daisy and I think I'm going to go and win this tournament. You've got to have the confidence building at the events before it. So some of those big guys will be less of a threat. You know, Delpo... Always a threat, but you know, even at Wimbledon right now, you take two guys and, and and be very comfortable against the rest of the field. That's interesting. So this is uh, Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM. And if you'd like to call in, if you have a question, you can call in at one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six or email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I'm your host this morning, Adi Weiner. I'm with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. And we're interviewing Craig O'Shaughnessy about uh, strategy in tennis. It's very fascinating. I'm going to actually throw in a question that we we did get from a listener. Um, it was apropos what we had earlier, which was um, specifically, why is it that coaching is banned in tennis? It seems to be it's not banned in any other sport. Um, why is the why is that the custom? And and what do you think uh, is the reason why it continues? And would it make things much different if it ended? Yeah, you know, it's it's basically the players walk through the gate with their bags and their water and their towel, and as soon as they walk through that gate to walk out onto the court, it's only them. It is one versus one. And, you know, I guess you have a boxing analogy, but you still have a manager screaming at the at the boxer, you know, as the fight's going on. But, you know, the tradition of tennis is meant to be it's you and the opponent and you don't get any help from the outside and go beat yourself, you know, or go and beat the opponent and the two guys go beat beat each other up. I like that. I really, really like that. And just because, you know, I, I don't think it's a valid argument at all to say, 
or other sports do it, so what other sports do it? Other sports are not tennis. And if coaching is great in your sport, whether it's basketball, whether it's football, you know, when you look at American football, you've got the coach so heavily involved or the coaching team so heavily involved calling every single play um, for both players and, and, and both teams. So, you know, I really like that aspect. When you look at the women's tour and they've experimented with this and, yeah, it certainly does have an impact, but, you know, they they put the TV camera on there and they put the mic on there. And if you listen to a lot of these exchanges, when the coach goes out there and talks to the player, the, the player's frantic. The, the, the player's upset and, and you know, they're, they're close to tears. And it's not a conversation very much revolved around the strategy to defeat the other opponent. It's, you know, the, the conversation is not about the other side of the net. It's just about trying to calm the nerves of the player that you're coaching. So, you know, I, I, I am definitely for it staying as it is. Now, in saying that, I still, as I mentioned at the start, I still recognize that coaches on the side of the court are bending that rule every single day. And it's a gray area. And, you know, I don't know whether it's like college tennis where you, you just allow the coach or whether it's like Davis Cup where you, the coach gets to sit on the side of the court. I don't know the answer. But tennis definitely has a problem because they are coaching at the moment, but it's not a significant enough problem that coaches are getting warnings every single match. So well, it, it's, it's a tough one, and I don't know the answer. So, Craig, this is Eric Bradlow again. I want to flip the switch a little bit and talk about the role of let's call it analytics and training in tennis right now. Because, uh -huh. you know, in my mind, you know, since I've been watching tennis since the early 70s, um, you know, I think about the greats when I was a child, Borg, you know, McEnroe, Connors, and then a little later in my life, Agassi and Sampras. They they didn't win majors after the age of 30. I think Sampras may have oh, won one. Borg yeah. was certainly done. Connors, the, when he performed at 30, Connors was like performed a, well, but he I don't think he, he won, won a major right. after it. I know McEnroe didn't. I know Borg did not. Agassi may have won one at 30 or 31, but now we have Djokovic, who's the holder of three of the slams. We have Nadal, who's obviously winning the French and others. Federer, of course, is 37. What do you think has led to this change in the sport where, essentially in men's tennis, you were done in your late 20s, and now the three, yeah. you know, it's still the big three, and there's not much change. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, when you look at the daily routine, let, let's say Federer, for example, we'll pick him. He's going to wake up in the morning and have the most nutritious, best breakfast possible and, and let's compare back to McEnroe on board it, is the nutrition side elevated and, and and superior for Roger absolutely there's no question then these guys at the elite level of the game making this amount of money can afford to have not only the chef at the tournament so and, and again I think this is just a small part but the bigger part is to have a full-time trainer a full-time physio somebody that's, that's full-time with you working on your body and you know these guys really rely on their body it's not so much that their mind is breaking down after 30 it's their body is slowing down breaking down after 30 but when you're able to employ you know one or two or three people to just make sure your body is finely tuned and not breaking down and you're getting massages every day and you're getting physio work or osteo work every single day you can elevate your career and you, you know the, the guys are playing longer because the body is not breaking down 
It is better looked after with the muscles and, and, and the skeleton. It's better looked after with the nutrition. So I put a lot of weight into the ability to afford in today's game somebody to just focus on you and your body and make sure it's humming like a Ferrari into your mid-30s. So one of the hypotheses that we had conjectured about this longevity increase has to do with the fact that they make so much money now, the top players in particular, as you point out, mm-hmm. but it also allows them to slow down their their tournament play. They don't have to play yeah. that many tournaments because they don't need to make money to keep going because all this is expensive, of course. Um, exactly. and, so, and so that allows them to preserve their, their, their bodies for future matches. So how much of a role do you think that plays? Oh, I couldn't agree more. That's a huge deal. And when, when Roger came out a couple of years ago and said, you know what, I'm just not going to play the clay court season, everybody went, what is happening here? We've never seen this. So you're mandated um, with your ranking points to play those nine Masters 1000 tournaments. If you don't play them, you get a zero. You can't just skip it and, and avoid the zero. So when Roger did that, it's like, and he did it under the pretense that, He's taking care of his body at that time, and he'll be able to um, play longer with his career. The first reaction was, well, he's taking zeros at Monte Carlo. He's taking a zero in Madrid. He's taking a zero in Rome. It's really going to affect the ranking because everybody was so fixated with the ranking. But we saw at the end of the year, he almost finished at number one anyway after skipping those tournaments. So, you know, to become number one in the world... um, You you only have to do well at a handful of tournaments. It's only 18 counts. So, you know, you can be, you can go in and have a great, you know, eight to 12 tournaments in a year and become number one and and not have the wear and tear on your body. So when Roger did that, it made us look at our sport differently and it made us look at it and say, you know, I'm going to take longer to rehab. And I remember when Marinka went out, a lot of guys would come back as quick as they possibly could, but all of a sudden say, no, I'm going to take the rest of the season off. So I'm going to I'm going to look after my body. What what is the consequence of having a ranking that's sort of mismatched with the actual talent or the probability of winning? It just all comes down to seeding and and how early in the event do you run against a top seed? I see. So what? So one through four are spread fairly evenly. So that's a big deal to be one through four. Then five through eight um, is, is the next, and then you know sometimes it doesn't matter whether you're ranked. 15 or 21. Well, Craig, let me ask you a question. Let me, this is Eric Brad. Let me interrupt for just a second. Let's imagine Nadal wants to win the French. That's his only, he wants to win the French. Would he, I, I, he doesn't care. If he doesn't win, he doesn't care where he comes in. Would he rather play Novak in the first round where he's perfectly fresh? Or would he rather play Novak after six matches in the final? If, if let me just give you my thought. If the answer, I don't know what your answer is. I'm, I'm excited to hear it. Let's imagine it's the first round. Well, then it's not an advantage for him to, and Novak to be one and two because he can't play him. The only guy in his mind maybe that can beat him until the end. Yeah. Um, again, as I talked about earlier, you want to play yourself into form. You want to peak towards the final, just as like when you play Monte Carlo and Rome. And Madrid, you're looking to peak through that period. So I don't think it's a benefit for Rafa to play Novak in the first round. He wants to get some experience and get some confidence and get some matches under his belt so that he's you know, got his game as finely tuned as possible. But for Rafa, it doesn't matter whether he's you know, the one seed or the two seed. That doesn't matter. And, and so 
the fact that he's, you know, the, the two seed coming in is is irrelevant. Well, actually, what, so Eric has essentially asked whether coming in as the twentieth seed make make a difference, and you're actually you're essentially saying no, it would hurt him. Which leads me actually to another question we got from a listener, yep. um, which is, what is the role of mental preparation and mental dominance in tennis? We have these players who keep going. I, for I, just the earlier anecdote you talked about, one of the roles of uh, of uh, sort of the coach, if you will. Uh, of a player is just to keep them from hurting themselves with their own sort of self-destruction. What is that? When what makes what makes it so a Rafa, a Rafa, a Djokovic, a, a Federer, it, and what what is the percentage of that championship you know, year after year due to their mental determination? Yeah, good point. So at the U.S. Open this this year, I was at a um, a, a fever party before the tournament, and Diego Schwartzman was there. So I walked up to Diego and introduced myself and. And, and said, listen, you know, I, I, I cover a lot of your matches. You're doing awesome. Um, you know, you won that first set uh, against against Rafa at Roland Garros. She took a set off Rafa. First of all, and I asked Diego, what was it like? What did you have to do to do a set? But why did you lose? Why did you lose that match? And I asked the same question to Martin Fukovics, who you got a set off um, Novak at um, an early set at the U.S. Open as well. And both guys answered the exact same thing. They said, the level that I have to bring to win that one set is so mentally, and they didn't say physically first, they said it's so mentally draining that after, after focusing so hard and, and, and being in the moment so hard for just a set against Rafa at Roland Garros and against Novak at the US Open, I just ran out of steam. I just had a little bit of a letdown and the guy was on top of me. So a big difference for these players is not the level of the, the, the physicality of actually hitting the ball or running around. It's the, it's the mental fatigue that the, 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 the toll that it takes to play these guys. And I had a joke. I was in the, in the, the player um, uh, restaurant last week in Rome and Demir Zuma was in there, and they've got a pool table in there. And I was at my computer all day. It had a rainy day, and I'm at my, at my computer doing strategy work with for Novak and the Italian Federation who I was working with. And I noticed Demir was uh, playing pool for over three hours. So I saw him the next morning. I'm like, Demir, are you playing pool again? He's like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I go, well, it's really good, really good for your mental game. And he looked at me. He goes, no, it is. He goes, do you know how it, it how much focus it takes to play a game of pool for three hours. He goes, it absolutely helps my mental focus. So I thought that was interesting as well. So, um, Craig, let me ask you, a, I don't know if it's a final question, but let's imagine, so we're, we're projecting forward now. We're statisticians, and we have a 37, I think, year old Federer, 32-year-old Nadal, 31-year-old Djokovic. They, Federer, obviously, I'm sure you get this question all the time. Federer has 20 majors, Nadal has 17, Djokovic has 15. If we're sitting here 10 years from now, I, I was going to say five, but Nadal may be still playing the French. If we're sitting here 10 years from now, I, I'm not joking. If we're sitting, and I, I know you know I'm serious. If we're sitting here 10 years from now, who do you think has the most majors? Well, I'm biased. I got a horse in the race here. So, um, you know, but, but, I, but I honestly think it's going to be Novak at the end of the day. I think I think Novak's, Longevity. He's the youngest of them all. His game is a little bit more adaptable, you know, to all of the surfaces. You know, Rogers had such a great run. Um, I think it's very difficult now, and we've said that for a number of years. But but holy cow, at 37, to go through and and win. You know, obviously, 
Wimbledon is his chance. Um, you know, if, even if Roger gets to 21, I think Novak, you know, he's won the last three. Uh, the, the work that I do with him, the understanding, and this is something that, that doesn't get talked about a lot. You know, why is Novak so good? Of all the players that I've worked with and all the, you know, all the players that I study, his ability to absorb a game plan and to absorb the level of data about the opponent, whether it's serving, returning, rallying, approaching. You know, when I, when I first started working, I said, Novak, I've got a lot of data on you, on you and a lot of the opponent. I need to filter it for you. You know, what, what do you want me to specialize in? He goes, Craig, I don't want to filter. I want to see everything that you want. I want it all. Absorb. I want, I want it all, and he absorbs it all. And, you know, his ability to go out and run a game plan and, and for me to sit on the side of the court and I'm like, I know exactly where he's going to hit the ball, where the, where the game plan dictates it, and, and he does it again and again. He doesn't deviate. You know, I put a lot of emphasis on why Novak will be finishing number one in Grand Slams out of those three based on his ability to absorb data and to execute the game plan Perfectly. That sounds a very interesting and a very wonderful conclusion. Maybe we'll use that to modify our over-unders on just that question as we move <laughs> forward. So, Craig, thank yeah. you so much for joining us here at Wharton Moneyball. Um, we've gotten through lots and lots of topics. Um, we have our final segment will be in a few moments on our over-under. Um, and I wanted to, you know, preface that with actually an article that was uh, written um, comparing the performance in baseball betting of two algorithms. There's the ELO algorithm, which is done by 538, and then there's Fangraphs, which produces its own forecast for every game. And what they, um, they Actually, there are other obvious competitors for, to throw in, which is in particular the Vegas odds. And uh, the article really talked about comparing the two head-to-head, and what's interesting about it is, uh, I'll toss this out as a number for you guys, what do you think is the approximate uh, probability of being right at the, as uh, predicting the outcome of a baseball game? So just to give you some baseline numbers, you better say better than 50% because <laughs> you remember you get information. So what yeah. do you think is the overall average percentage uh, of correct? Just to win the game or win Just, the game against some spread? Uh, or well, some? no. You, so essentially, you take every game that was played. Uh, every forecast produces uh, a forecast on who's going to win. It also produces a forecast on the probability that they're going to win. And then one measure of, of, of assessing your accuracy is how many times you predicted the winner of the game. Um, so if you just tossed yeah. a coin, you'll get 50% right. So right, no, now no, no, you have just, information. You're just saying just the winner, not against any spread. So I'm going to guess what no, it is for most sports and most algorithms. I'm going to say just the winner of the game. I'm going to say it's somewhere between 65 and 70%. I would say 60%. I'm going low on that. It actually is a bit lower than that. It's about 57%. Wow. Um, which is testimonial to the fact that for two things. First of all, uh, fundamentally, there just isn't that much spread in baseball on any given outcome. It's not the Yankees versus Orioles <laughs> in any given day, which, of course, we talked about earlier. I know, Eric, you've probably been enjoying those games. Um, and those produce spreads of about 70-30. Those are about as big as they get. I see. Most of them are much smaller, and that's I think that's what that shows. I guess I should have known that because yeah. what I suggested would suggest that there are a lot of games that like minus 200. And those games just don't just exist. As a matter don't fact, even the best pitcher against the worst pitcher, you see most games minus 150, minus That's 160, right. which yeah. would be right in the range you're That's talking right, about. That's right, 55 to about 60. Does Fangraphs or Elo do better? Okay, so the answer is actually it's a split vote. And this is a good mm. pre, you know, prelude to our over-under because how do you measure the results? So the split vote is that the Elo does a little bit better in accuracy. Hmm. So what does that mean to be doing better in accuracy? It means they're just getting slightly more correct. Now, the, I, the, the article didn't 
to actually dig into whether those differences are substantive statistically significantly. Is it the result of chance? Obviously, there's but I mean that's an interesting games. result just because yeah. Elo's. Elo's strength is really its simplicity, simplicity right? Yeah. I mean, it's really just based on wins and losses. So I think the reason attributed was it just gives a slightly more accurate home field advantage, yeah. um, and I, that's the difference. I think one of the other things I'd love to look at, I'll have to look at this article, is I don't. I like measures of accuracy. Did you get it right or wrong? Right. But what I also like even better, something we in marketing think about all the time, is proper calibration. And here's what I mean. If... Let's say ELO or any algorithm predicts 70-30, and let's say it predicts 500 games or 70-30. Well, how many of the 70-30 games to get right? How many of the 60-40 right. games yeah. to get right? The reason this matters for marketing is that you can get these strange aggregation effects where one algorithm does better than the other, but it doesn't do particularly well. It's not properly calibrated, yep. yeah. and that's something that we well, think about all, a, a lot. So let me just yeah. follow up. So, if, for example, if you're 70-30, if you're calibrated, then... Among all the times you predict 70%, you should win 70% of that's the time. That's what I mean by proper so calibration. That's proper calibration. On the other hand, if it turns out that you win 100% of your time, then you're predicting perfect forecasting, right? You're always getting it right, but you're you're essentially underconfident. And yeah. so and that in certain in certain elements that's not good to be underconfident. So if you say Agreed. 70%, you should be 70% even though if it turns out 100%, you just you just sort of flub that one. So which leads me to the second scoring rule they use. And there are many what we call proper scoring rules. They use a uh, log loss. Now log loss every time I say the word log in in a non-mathematical public, your the eyes roll like, "Oh god, that was that subject matter." Just call the Breyer score, <laughs> the, or whatever. Breyer, the Breyer score. Give it a, give well, it a Breyer name. Breyer score is, is mean squared error. Yeah. Um, so log loss is, uh, is I could call it entropy or surprise. Essentially, value evaluates the confidence that you put on the result. And then by that measure, the fan graphs actually does a little bit better. So just to be clear for our listeners out here, what Adi's talking about is if you claim a game is a point nine game, and you get it wrong. That's a bigger penalty that's a against yeah. you than if you say it's a point five three game and get it wrong. That's right. And that's what these penalty functions do. It's not just win-loss, yes, right. It's what was the probability associated right. with the one that you got right or wrong. Now, the log loss is a funny scale because on the log, no one likes to talk about it. It's like point six seven or 4. It's all relative to log, uh, the log of, uh, of 2, it turns out. you know, And, and it, there actually is an interpretation. You can think of it as in terms of a money-making loss. So it's the, what rate your investments would be growing if you're betting on these huh. games with that advantage. And so it yeah, turns it's out a multiplicative that function. It's a multiplicative function. So that's a nice function. way to think it's, about it's it. It's a nice way of thinking. It's, it, does, it takes a little bit of math to get it down perfectly. But bottom line is that if you were betting on the outcomes, you'd do a little bit better in terms of your fortune would grow a little faster if you were betting using now, the, what's the uh, obviously interesting graph system. Matter right. of fact, the more I think about it, this is one of the things where we recalibrate and, you know, if uh, I don't get to wind back the clock here on Wharton Moneyball. Right. If what I said was true... Matter of fact, it shows you how incoherent what I said was. If you could actually predict 70% of the games with the VIG the way it is, you'd be printing money. Printing money. So the fact is, it almost had to be less than yeah. 60%, because just betting wins and losses in Vegas, you can make that bet any time you want. Well, remember, you're getting, in Vegas, you have to pay the price of the, the favorite 
you you get worse odds when you're betting on the favorite. In this particular strategy, we're not doing that. No, we're no, no getting, I know. We're but getting I, paid one to one no matter. No, what no, the game no. Is. I know yeah. that, but I'm just commenting. If you could predict 65 oh to 70 percent of the a, games, you make a you just start printing you're money. Printing so that can't money. be cohesive. It, 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 it can't, it can't be, right. be a good guess. But let's talk about another. So let's go back to the the golf tournament. Um, Eric, you are partial to being very um, uh, um, confident about your forecast, but I'm going to give you kudos. You nailed it. You nailed it. You, you nailed, nailed it the two, PGA two Championship. Times. So, uh, so Bruce. So, uh, Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka, you were super high on him, and he, not only that, we, we were together during the day on, on on during that on Thursday. He just he set a record, I think, a record of sixty three. Was that a course record? He's for- t- well, that's the lowest ties for lowest round ever in a major tournament, and then his two round score sixty three sixty five one twenty eight is the lowest ever in a major. Yeah. So he, no one ever has scored less than I think one thirty. And he was also the previous had the largest record. lead going into Sunday in a major of all time. Not of right. all time, but, but all in time. a long time. So, yeah, Tiger has oh. had leads of that yeah, yeah. size in, before. In, no, yeah, not not of all time. But oh, but, okay. Because I, I, I actually no. saw that. I'm like, I thought that Tiger Pebble Beach one. Had not only a that, Tiger lead. won the Masters by yeah. twelve shots, and I don't yeah. think Tiger was leading by. That, I think Tiger's yeah, leading by like eight or nine or ten exactly. going into going the final in. round. Okay. But speaking of Tiger, you were also you were also I don't know whether this is the proper explanation for it. We'll never know. But you said his time off certainly didn't help, um, and it didn't look good for Tiger out there. What, well, we, it, what information do we? What can we say about Tiger going forward based on this new current round of information? Well, that we have? I, I think there's two things. A, a lot to, there was a lot to learn from Tiger, and then we'll kind of make some forecasts for Brooks going forward. So first thing is, this was a course where if you were two feet outside of the fairway, you're screwed, is the technical term for it. The rough was extraordinarily heavy, penalized. If you weren't driving it accurately, you had no chance. And of course, we all know the club that Tiger has struggled with over the last five years, the driver. The first, give me an example, on Friday, the day he's trying to make the cut. I think it's true. The first 12 holes, he hit the fairway once. Yeah. Once out of 12. So if you're not driving it straight at Beth Page Black, you're not going to win. Because essentially, it's a penalty stroke. You have to just chip out. So you might as well. So that's that's what happened with Tiger. Tiger's driving was off. His iron game was fine. His putting was fine. As a matter of fact, the fact that he only missed the cut by one stroke, given how poorly he drove the ball, said his overall game was fine. His driving was terrible. Why would his driving be bad? uh, And and if, if it's kind of recognizable... That his driving's bad, and it's clear over an entire round that he's not able to correct that. Why not leave the driver in the bag? You could. The problem is, I've got 7,460 reasons at yeah. Beth Page no, Black I, why I, I you can't I understand. leave the driver. You, you, you would not, he's probably not going to win with By the way, just that's the yardage of iron. Beth Page Black. Yeah. No, no, he can't. But, the problem is, there are so many holes there where you know a 510-yard par 4... Into the wind, if he hits a three-wood off the tee, you're right. He can hit a 270 down the middle, and then he's got a 240-yard iron shot to the green. Good luck. Good luck with that. And by the way, he tried that. On Friday, by the 10th hole, he was hitting three woods off the tee, and by that point, those weren't particularly hitting the fairways either. So you you would definitely uh, blame, if you will, or explain Tiger with the particularities of this particular course. Tiger Woods was even par... As I predicted would happen, he was like plus four or five after the first four or five holes on Thursday. Well, And then the other Tiger kicked in, 
It's warm-up effects. The guy hadn't yeah, played a so. competitive round of golf, and that would that was concerning me from that point forward. Well, speaking of predictions, we're going to go into our final segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. All right. So, we didn't talk too much NBA, so maybe we'll lead off with some NBA over-unders. So, our, we have only one one basketball to, uh, end of a tournament going on right now. We have uh, Obviously, we have the finals uh, coming, but right now, the Raptors versus the Bucks Over-under, 6.5 games. Will it go to seven, or will it not? Eric, you can lead us off. All right. So, I think it's a seven-game series. I think that it's obviously 2-2 now. I don't see any reason to believe that each of the... I don't know how it's going to go in Game 7, but I don't see any reason to believe that the Bucks and Raptors both won't hold home court in Games 5 and 6. So I'm going to go over seven games. Yeah, I'm going to take the over, too. Just because of the home court thing, it seems to just be ruling the eastern side of the playoffs. I, yep. I mean, I, 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 I don't see the, either of these two teams as particularly likely to win an away game. All right. I, unfortunately, unfortunately, meaning I'm not going to be boring. I'm going to have to agree with you. Uh, th- I'll throw in two cents uh, analytically. These games, these tournaments seem to go to seven far more than they should. And I think this is that means that means that's a good prediction. Also, um, I would probably suggest that, I mean, the counter argument would be that the Bucks, I think, were a pretty heavy favorite. Um, and in fact, they're seven point favorite going into game five, which suggests that maybe they, that it will not go to seven games. Well, of course, they're a seven point favorite because they're also they're at, at home, home in course, game five. Right, right. And acts, but they still were favored, by the way, yeah, in Toronto, yeah, but like favored. by two or three points. Right. So I'm going over on that one. All right. So turning to the Warriors, 1.5 more losses for the Warriors in the finals. Wow, that's an amazing... Uh, and these are well-calibrated. we got to touch... Very well-calibrated. Uh, Matt has always been good at sort of nailing that 50 percentile, or at least close to it. So, uh, Shane, you're, you're up next. You're the, you have to take the lead on this one. 1. 1.5 losses for I'm gonna the Warriors. I'm going to take the under. I'm going to take oh, the under. under. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with uh, a short series in the finals. Golden State will be rested. Kevin Durant will... Be back? No, Perhaps no. be back, but Perhaps even if not. he's not, who know? Who cares? I mean, I guess I, I just see go. I, I I just see them as unstoppable right now. Uh, do you want me to go next? So- no, 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 no. No, that's not. Let's not leave leave the turn here. I'm going to go. Um, I'm actually going to. I don't know. Being contrary, contrary is uh, is not uh, always the best strategy when when the arguments. It, it, being contrary <laughs> to me is a pretty good strategy. I'm terrible at uh, these things. Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to go over. I think uh, I think the Warriors will win this, but I think it'll take them at least six games to do it. So I'm going over. I'm going to go over as well, but the rationale for me is very simple. Um, both of those teams will have home court advantage yep. against the Warriors in the finals, whichever team wins. I think one of them splits the first two games at home. I think they probably go down 3-1, and I think it all come down to whether they win, let's call it Game 5 at home or not. I, I agree with Shane. It's either 4-1 or 4-2 Warriors. I don't see 4-0. I would be shocked if those teams lost both games at home, although... It could happen. I'm going over. I think it. I think because of the home court. I think it'll go. I think it'll go over. Okay. I, all right. So uh, we sort of you know align here. Um, okay. So let's go with one more and our final basketball one, and then we'll turn to some other sports. One and a half games for Durant played for the Warriors next year. So basically, will he stay or will he go? Now it's my turn to start. Will he stay or will he go? I'm thinking he's going to go. So I'm going under. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely going under because if you actually think about 
Durant's legacy, and that's what he cares about now. He's won titles, but everybody knows. I hate to say it. This this right now is even making it more likely he's going to go, and let me say why. This shows you that this Warrior team can win without him. Yeah. And so these titles that's that right. he's won will be seen as tainted titles for him, I not for the I team. The They're idea. not the tainted. tainted they no, won them. I know. But yeah. everyone's going to play the counterfactual. How many titles would they have won had he not joined, and did he just join to win titles? Yeah. He's going to need to go somewhere else and prove he can win a title for his legacy without Thompson, Curry, Green, Iguodala, etc. So I think this makes it—I think the current run of the Warriors, even though it's going to be three in a row— makes it less likely that he stays, so I'm going under. Yeah, I agree completely with that. I think, uh, I mean, we're all guessing at Kevin Durant's psychology a little bit here, but I think he I think he wants to sort of demonstrate his MVP status in kind of a more right, of an MVP right. sort of scenario where he can kind of like, you know, be be kind of the obvious primary on a particular team. Let's call him the Knicks. Um, or whoever, and and yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna take the under on this as well. Well, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, we all went under on the number of games he's going to play for the Warriors, meaning we all think he's going to move. Vegas has him at staying mm. minus one fifty. Well, which I mean, is around sixty percent. Of course, it just depends on. I hate to say it, but you know, just like I said, there's seven thousand four hundred and sixty reasons Tiger yeah, yeah. didn't, uh, you know, hit the three wood. There's probably sixty million or eighty million reasons right. why Durant might stay with the Warriors. Well, they can give him a much larger contract. This is not an over under, but if you're a Golden State fan, like you put, try and put yourself in mind of a Golden State fan who really likes Kevin Durant. What do you What are you cheering for? Because you know, I think I think that. The outcome of these finals will ha- be a key determinant of whether he stays or not. I mean, so maybe what do you, you mean? think you Durant's think already if, got. If, if, he if, wins, if they he lose goes, the finals and stays. lose it closely, and he does not play, right? Then he stays. That, then all of a sudden, that's like you know that ah. that, that goes the other way. Then all of a sudden, Kevin Durant is needed ne- on the Golden State. He's the key to where how they won the previous ones, and then maybe he stays. So what was the, what was LeBron's thinking to constantly move? I mean, what was the no, constantly. No, no, no. Well, no, no. I mean, no, no. he moved from several times. Well, he's moved twice. I think the the moving to the Miami was he felt he did not have the support team in Cleveland. Yeah. Remember, he made the finals with a ridiculously Nobody. bad team, and then you know he obviously they joined the big superstars, right? They obviously yeah. had Bosch yeah. and Wade, so they yeah. had the big three, and then I think part of it was. He wanted to prove for his legacy that yeah. he did not need, need. Wade and Bosch to yeah. win a title. And by the way, he, did. he proved it. Yeah. But and on the other he hand, beat the greatest team ever, the including Warriors. the Warriors. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I say the greatest, I mean they had the sure, best one sure. loss record yeah. ever that season. Ever. And yeah. remember, no, to, to add to his legacy besides eight straight finals, he won Game 7. In Golden State, and they were down by three himself. to one. Essentially, well, not not Kyrie himself, Irving but, had a good yeah, game, yeah. but I think it also proves the thing about LeBron is everybody knew, and it's being proven now. LeBron's legacy goes even greater when you see Kyrie Irving now, in the sense of Kyrie Irving may be the best possible number two a team could have, but he's but not a number he's one. Not a number but on one. the other number hand, one. and and LeBron moved three times, and the most recent move, which is his third move, yes. is to the Lakers, and that's the downside because he's just nothing. I mean, and it almost it's almost is it is it causing anybody to rethink LeBron's status? Because no, I, of, I'm no. not not no. 
I mean, if if if, if they are continue to be horrible, you know, horrible <laughs> for the next couple seasons, then we start to think. But no, I mean, I, I, most people, I think, in his move, did not expect the Lakers to contend well, no, this particular yeah, but, yeah. year. They weren't going to contend. I don't think they expected. Clear. I, I don't think it was. LeBron- before LeBron got injured and Lonzo Ball got injured, the Lakers were the five seed in the West, right. and they were targeting in the 45 to 50 win range. Yeah. They would have made the playoffs, I believe, would have won a first-round series, and no, they weren't coming out of the West. Yeah. But they were having a very good season. Actually, LeBron's sure. player efficiency rating had never been higher, so yeah. he was actually playing extraordinarily well. And then well. there's the other remark uh, that Matt just fed me, that the the uh, Cavs won only 19 games this year. So you talk about your differential. The guy oh, leaves and yeah. collapse just, just sets in. So I, I so in some level, you ask yourself about Durant. Durant, I think this is what he's going to do. He's going to move to demonstrate that he's in the same pantheon as someone like LeBron we James. Agree. So I think I th- that's why. Well, that does lead to the opportunity question: Should we be betting? I think we've all collectively agreed something that's different from the Vegas line doesn't happen too often. All right, we'll save that for some other point. We have one last over under. We got to do say something about the NHL. The playoffs are beginning. We have yeah. a half hour discussion. So two point five losses for the Bruins. In the finals. That's the over-under. And I believe Eric is up, although I will defer to our hockey expert maybe to get us started. Okay. Shane, um, Shane. I think I'm going to take the over on this. I think it's going to be a close series. I, I, I like the Bru- I think the uh, the Bru- Bruins and Blues match up really well together. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to a close competitive series. I wanted to go like six or seven games. So... I'm I'm taking the over. All right. Well, I love that, and I'm just gonna you know, Cade's not here today, but what Cade really values in in hockey in particular is a good seven game series. Yeah. So not only I'm rooting for it, but I also think it's likely. I think that um, there is a there is a slight home field advantage. Which yeah, does, which but I mean, these two teams court. are pretty evenly I, matched. There, there, there's yeah. no dominance one way or the other. I think. So, so. I'm going to go over. Although I have to say, I'm not sure what exactly the probabilities are. Um, if two evenly matched teams are playing, what's the what's the what is the expected value? Or what's the median value i need to know um so i'm not sure about that but I, remember it is the the bruins are favored to win but but i'm taking them to uh to i'm taking them over in 2.5 losses so i'm going over so i'm gonna go for the over but for a slightly different rationale since i don't really know i mean i can see the bruins are favored i don't know much about the two teams in my view there's a 50 percent chance that the blues are going to win the series entirely yeah. and then i have to add on to the probability of that that That's the right. bruins win the series but the bruins win it in seven right right so yeah. i to me that puts me way above 50 okay, percent well, and so i'm we'll going the go. over but for a slightly, for different, slightly reason. different reason so we, we're not going to do any more over unders but i just want to toss one out that's on the list and i'm eliminating it because i know we're all going to be equal which was a half this is not counting for those keeping track which is the number of uh, of, of wins in this coming french open for rafael for nadal which is a half and the reason i'm not counting it as i believe we all heard at least we all collectively agree from our experts that he's the favorite which would make us all go over in the number of of uh, categories, um, so I'm, uh, that's why I'm not including it. I'm taking my my, my position is in this position uh, to, to pull it off, but I let you guys uh, argue with me. Do you think there's there any debate on that? No, no, <laughs> no. I think I, I put Nadal at the French Open like I put Golden State in the finals. I just. <laughs> It's like a boring one. Yeah, you it's, it's, you know. well, that's actually a very. Let's do that over. Let, let, we can't do the over. We only on have a few seconds. I know. Eric, so. All right. So let me just <laughs> following. I think Golden State. This year is a bigger favorite in the finals than Nadal is at the French. I, think that's I see right. some I chinks it. in Nadal's armor. I think Djokovic has a good shot. 
I'd rather have Golden State than Nadal. All right. Well, there's our final good point there that wraps up our show today. It's been a wonderful two hours. I want to thank our producer, Maddie Datz, our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin, Danielle Bruno. Danielle Bruno. And we'd like to uh, welcome you back next week for our show as we continue. Take a wonderful time. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your stats. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.